You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Well, good morning. I just want to give a special welcome to those uh, joining us online this morning, and uh, uh, if you want to let us know that you're with us by uh, indicating so on whatever platform you're uh, watching on, we'd love to, to know you're with us. Well, um, this morning's going to be a little bit different as we um, contemplate the Son of God on a, on a, upon a cross. I, uh, if you've been attending this church uh, very often, you know that you know, typically you, get, you pull out your pen and your paper and you're ready to take notes and you're waiting for that next point on the PowerPoint. Well, we're not going to do that this morning. I want you to just sit and soak and think. I want you to think about our Lord and Savior on a cross. How did he get there? Why is he there? Why do we believe that salvation is through Christ alone? Why do we believe that? Acts 4.12 says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ alone is able to save us. The work of salvation is not a community project. It is not a many hands make small work kind of thing. It is him alone. This is highlighted in those last hours of Christ as his enemies defeat him by having him arrested. His friends leave him. And even on the cross, he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? Christ is all alone. So how did we get here? How did this happen? Well, you need to go back to the beginning in order to understand. And so we do. We go back to Genesis 1.1. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can this morning. But Genesis 1.1, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is such an important statement. God created the heavens and the earth. We believe that before there was an earth, before there was a sun, before there was a moon, before any of it, there was God. He had no beginning. He has no end. He is eternal. That's hard for you and I to comprehend, to get our minds wrapped around who have a beginning and end. But this God, he has no beginning. He has no end. He is the one who spoke this world into being. It's popular today to say, that, well, the universe, if I do this, the universe gives me this, the universe gives me that. Well, the Bible tells us that the universe was created by God. And when he created, it was good. Everything was really good. And Psalm 19.1 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Everything that we see proclaims God. Kukul says this, God is the very first piece of the Christian story. 
because the story is all about him. God is the central character. The story does not start with us because the story is not about us. Sometimes we like to believe that the world revolves around us. This is not the case. The world revolves around God, and it is all about him. And so that's what we need to start with if we're going to understand the cross. If we're going to understand why you're here this morning, why I'm here this morning, we need to start with this understanding that God is over it all. He is the king. He is the creator. So how did humanity get here? If you go down to verse 26, we read in Genesis 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let us... Even in the earliest pages of Scripture, we see this uniqueness of our God. He is one God, yet he is three persons. He is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And out of all creation, mankind is unique. He, they are created in the image of God, and they are to have dominion over all creation. Schreiner says this, God made human beings in his image so that they would display his glory reflect his character, and rule the world for God. This was the original mission of mankind, to rule over creation, to represent God here on this earth. In Genesis 2, you can see in verses 15 through 17, as this work is further explained, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam is to rule. He is to be the king over the world. He is to take care of the creation that God has entrusted to him. He is to work and keep the earth. A world with no pain, a world with no suffering, it is a beautiful place, and everything is in harmony with one another. This is highlighted in the last verse of chapter 2. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Nothing to hide. Perfect relationships. Extreme intimacy in every way. And God would come into the garden and be with them. They would stand in the very presence of God. This is where the world began. No guilt. No shame. As we've read in Genesis, we see that there's two trees highlighted. There's a tree of life, and there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which if they eat of it, they will die. A tree of life and a tree of death is put before them, and they need to choose. Will they eat of the tree of life, or will they choose to eat of the tree of death? You don't have to be a religious person to know which tree they chose. We see death all around us even today. They choose death. 
There's a serpent in the garden as we get into Genesis 3. The serpent we now know of as Satan. He comes and he tempts Eve and Adam, who was with Eve. As you read Genesis 3, you see that Satan, he, he brings doubt to the mind of Eve. He claims that God is the one who is deceiving Eve. And that if she, she would eat of the tree, it would actually be good for her. And that she would not die. Wilson says this, when the serpent proffered the forbidden fruit to Eve, he was tempting her to hope for things she already had, as if she didn't have them. There is no greater fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment than found in communion with God. She had everything she could ever want already in God, and he's offering her something that could never be found. So Satan promises her those things in a way that would fail to deliver fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment. They had everything they could ever hope for, and yet they believe the lie that God wasn't good, and they choose Satan's way, they choose their own ways, and sin comes into the world. Turns out that Satan is a liar, that God was truthful, and immediately they receive what? Shame and guilt. Genesis 3, 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They tried to redeem themselves. They tried to cover up their sin in some way. They, they make these pathetic loincloths of fig leaves. And when God comes into the garden, what do they do? They try to hide themselves from him. And of course, that's a fool's errand. And so God asks them what has happened. And they do that what you and I still do. They blame someone else for their sin. Eve blames Satan. Adam blames Eve. And now the curse comes upon this earth. In Genesis 3.15, God first places the curse upon Satan he says that one day the offspring of man will crush the head of Satan. There will be a fatal blow to Satan one day. He will, he, he will strike at the man, mankind's heel. He will wound them, but he will be defeated as mankind. This, this one who will come will defeat him. In Genesis 3.16, we're told that Eve would experience much, much pain in childbirth as a result of the curse. There would also be relational conflict as a result of the curse. Adam is told in Genesis 3, 17 and 18, in pain you shall eat of it, of the ground, all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And then one day they will die. They will return to the dust from which they were, were made. And then God graciously makes garments for them from skins. Blood is shed to cover their shame. However, they are forced out of the presence of God. They are forced out of the Garden of Eden and away from the tree of life. We read in Genesis 3.24, He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way 
to the tree of life. Man is now separated from God. He cannot walk in his presence as he once did. He, he is now cut off from life as a result of sin. I don't need to tell you much about sin and the devastation of sin. You know it even today in your own life. But Genesis 4, as we read Genesis 4 right through Malachi, we're told of the destruction of sin over and over again. By the next chapter, we see the first murder in Genesis 4. And it just gets worse and worse. And by Genesis 6, we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We go from the Garden of Eden where they're walking in perfection, they're walking in the ways of the Lord, to this point where every man and woman on this earth is, it says here that they have the thoughts of their heart was evil continually. And we know that except for one family, God destroys the earth. He judges the earth. He brings death as a result of sin, just as he told them he would. So through one family, mankind is still saved. You can read Genesis 8 through 11. We're kind of like, uh, the problem's still there. Even this Noah family, they're... The problem's still there. Where is this one who will come to destroy Satan? Who is the one that will come to, to, to reverse the curse? Where is he? You get to Genesis 12, and, and now we read about blessing on this earth, that it's going to come through this family, this, this family of Abraham's, that, that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You get to Genesis chapter 49, and then we read that it's going to come through the line of Judah, this one who is to come, this one who has been promised from Genesis 3.15. And as you continue through the Old Testament, you, you see God continually pointing them back and pointing them forward, pointing them back and pointing them forward. As they get the law, and they're told how to, be, to come into the presence of God, what are they told? Blood must be shed. A lamb must be killed in order for sins to be atoned for. Fascinating. What's, what's all over the temple? What's all over the tabernacle? Cherubim. They're woven into the tapestry. The, the veil that's before them, there are cherubim there. They're guarding, still guarding people's presence to come, come into the presence of the Lord. Cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. Reminding them, just as they could not get back into the garden again, there's still a problem. There's still something that's separating from God. And only the high priest could come into the Holy of Holies once a year through the blood of the Lamb. There's still a separation. There's still a need for the one to come. The curse remains. As we continue on, of course, we, we know that God then reveals that this one who is to come will come through the line of David, that he will be a king, that, that he will be on his throne forever. Where is he? When will he come? And then, they talk of, and then there's talk of a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This intimacy that the people long for, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. How will this happen? Who will be the one to achieve all this? Well, as you get to the Gospels, the first four books in the New Testament, we find out who is the one who is to come. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the one who Genesis 3.15 talked about. He is the one who will reverse the curse. He is the one who will defeat Satan. He is the one who will make it possible for us now to come into the presence of God. We find out right in the beginning of those Gospels that Jesus is unique. He's born of the Virgin Mary. His conception comes about by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. God the Creator, God the King, is now taking on flesh. He is the one who is to come. He's not just another man. He is fully God, fully man. And he grows up. And as he reaches adulthood, we read that just as Adam was tempted, so this Adam is now tempted. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, he's in the wilderness. He hasn't eaten or drank for 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan comes and tempts him, and on three different occasions, Jesus rebukes Satan. He walks in perfection for his entire life. As he ministers to people, we read that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus does what Adam should have. He walks in perfection. He rules just as God intended him to rule. He's reversing the curse, but the hardest work that Jesus came to do is still left to the end of his life. Adam had been told at the time of his curse that through the sweat of his face that he would eat bread. In other words, his work would take great effort and would come at a cost. And now in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus Christ sweating. Sweating blood, knowing the agony that is to come. We read in Luke twenty-two forty-four, 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Although the cost would be great, he goes through this cost saying, not my will, but yours be done to the Father. All through his life, not living for himself, living for the will of the Father. Jesus is then betrayed and arrested and falsely accused. And while he is being kept under guard by the soldiers, we read in John 19, verses 22 and 3, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with with their hands. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the King of the Jews. They were right in saying that. And in this twisted way, in this, in, this, in this, what seems to be the defeat, I love that video at the beginning, what seems to be a feat, defeat, God is showing us the way to victory. 
What was kids? You guys are with me with us this after this morning. What was one of the curses in the garden? It was a, was thorns, right? Thorns. And what did they weave together and place on Jesus' head? A crown of thorns. The curse is being placed upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Despite his innocence, Jesus is now sentenced to death. He is taking on our guilt and shame. He is becoming the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Just as John the Baptist, when he seen him coming, declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is on the cross he fulfills what the law required that blood be shed, that a sacrifice would be there for sin. We read in Hebrews 9, 26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so we read that Jesus is taken to the cross, and as he gets there, they strip him of his clothes. The soldiers, they, 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 they draw lots for his tunic, and Jesus is placed upon a cross naked. The Romans would do this to add to the shame for the prisoner. Jesus now, as it, again, once again, is pointing us back to the garden. He now is taking on our sh shame and guilt in nakedness with a crown of thorns upon his head. He's hung on a tree, is how the apostles put it. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, it is declared that anyone who is hung upon a tree is cursed. Jesus is taking on a curse. As we think about the Garden of Eden, the tree of life and the tree of death, now we see a tree where the author of life is hanging upon a cross. And it is in his death that he will bring life. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus, who is without sin, has taken on my sin, your sin, the sins of the whole world upon himself. He's screaming it out loud through the thorns, through the nakedness, through the tree. He's saying, I'm taking your curse upon myself, and I am paying the payment that was due you as he hangs upon the cross. The uniqueness of the crucifixion is highlighted as the creator, the king, hangs on the cross. Darkness comes over the whole land from noon to three. Then there's an earthquake such that rocks are split and tombs are opened, and the veil in the temple is split in two as the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus Christ. The way is now open for us to get to God, to come into his presence. And Jesus' last words are, it is finished, as he gives up his spirit. What about the serpent, Satan? Hebrews 2, 14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. 
death no longer has any power over those who are, have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day soon, Jesus' will work will be finished when he returns. Paul talks about this in Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Death, sin, Satan, they've all been defeated by Jesus Christ. This is why he came. This is why he hung upon the cross. This is why it is declared in John 14, 6, by Jesus himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This morning, if you would be made right with your creator, if you would be made right with the king, if you would want to come into his presence, then you must go through Jesus Christ. If you would be free from your sin, if you would desire to no longer be under the power of death, if you would be free from the power of Satan, then you must place your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's because of the love of God that he has provided a new way for us to choose either death or life. Our default is to choose death. But I'm praying this morning that you have chosen life, that you have chosen Jesus Christ. The curse still remains on this earth. Many of you are experiencing that even this week. We're experiencing it with all the different technical difficulties this morning, like work is still hard, still a lot of weeds are going on, right? There, there's still a lot of problems on this earth. People still die, as we tragically were reminded of even yesterday. The curse still remains on this earth, but does the curse remain on you this morning? And I want you to hear this. Because Jesus Christ has come, the curse no longer has to remain on you. Sin, Satan, and death have been defeated through Jesus Christ. And if you would place your hope and trust in him today, you too could be free from the curse of sin. Have you placed your trust in him this morning? The today, the choice is yours. There's a tree of life, and there's a tree of death. This morning, I would pray that everyone here could say, I have chosen, I have chosen life. I have repented of my sin. I have placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful this morning that I can celebrate a God who loved me so much that he would leave his throne in heaven, that he would come and live on this earth and die on a cross for me. In the midst of a world full of curse, we long for the day when he will return. This is what we're going to talk about on Sunday. He's coming back soon. He has begun the work. He has purchased the victory. But the final, the final chapter is coming. I cannot wait for that day. I pray that you are in that place where you're going to say, I can't wait for that day either, Pastor. But today we praise him that the curse has been broken. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we are so thankful for our redemption. We're so thankful, Lord, that you have made a way 
that we might be made right with you. God, you're so faithful. Just how kind you are to us to remind us of, uh, of the fact that through the crown of thorns, through, through nakedness, through the tree, Lord, you, you, you were, you're pointing it out so clearly that, Lord, you are the one who's taking the curse upon yourself. That through you, Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. And our hope is eternal and can never, ever be taken away from us. Lord, we're so thankful for that this morning. And Lord, we look forward to the day when you will return. And then the curse will be finally broken forevermore. The, the creation, even today, is groaning. It's waiting for the day. Lord, we know the day is coming soon. Help us to be ready. Lord, I'm praying, Lord, for those people who would be watching online, for those who people who are here this morning, if there be anyone Lord, who is still under your curse of sin, the curse of sin. God, I pray that you, they, would, they would repent and they would place their faith and trust in you and be freed forevermore. Lord, would you do that for them even today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.